So actually, we move past Romans 11. We're in the lesson 41, finds us in Romans chapter 12. And last week, you know, I hit the Roman church pretty hard for its anti-Semitism, for its replacement theology, and its errors in understanding the scriptures. And we looked at how, because of events in history, Rome's dominance of the world, these errors became embedded within the church. And the Roman church has a history of anti-Semitism and replacement theology and ignorance of the truth of Scripture. And it caused us to lose the Hebrew roots of the faith in Messiah Yeshua. And the Jewish people who were Torah-observant followers of Yeshua pretty much vanished from history. Well, it's not... Just the Romans who were at fault for the disappearance of this apostolic congregation, as I like to call this first century congregation. Let's today just briefly look at what happened to the apostolic Jewish believers in Yeshua. Uh, We know what happened to the apostles. Some were martyred by the leaders of Jerusalem. Some were martyred by the leaders in Rome, both of which were rulers of this present evil age. I want you to think about something for a moment, and it goes back to our six groups of people that we talked about when we first started the book of Romans that made up a first century community. Remember what they were? We had the Jewish people who did not believe Yeshua is the Messiah. We had non-Jewish people who were full converts, proselytes who did not believe Yeshua was the Messiah. We had non-Jews who were seeking God, just God-fearers, who were not full converts, but did not think Yeshua was the Messiah. And then we had each of those three groups who did believe that Yeshua was the Messiah. And so actually we had these six groups of people in Rome. And remember, the other thing that we established as we went along was that Aquila and Priscilla, after this five-year expulsion of the Jews ended and with the death of Claudius and they had returned to Rome that they were meeting in their own home. And while we don't know exactly why for sure, I think we can piece some of it together. We know from the letter to the Romans that part of the difficulty in Rome was over food in days of worship. Why would a Jew, upon returning to Rome after a five-year absence, meet in his own home rather than one of the established synagogues or congregations? Well, one of the reasons might be this, that it happened that he was troubled by the foods that they served at the community meal. Another would be that he felt that those Romans in the synagogue had not completely separated themselves from the paganism that they used to be a part of. And we can see how important each of those things would have been to these believers if we look at Acts chapter 15, and we'll do that in a moment. In other words, the believing Jews were Torah observant. And we're finding that the Romans in the synagogues, well, not so much. And what I want to show today is that in the first century, the Jewish believers in Messiah Yeshua were Torah observant, and the Romans not so much. History speaks of the early followers of Yeshua, and I'm going to read of a writing that was written around 375, 400 common era. And it says this, when they were once called Yesians during a short period, some again withdrew at that time after the ascension of the Lord when Mark preached in the land of Egypt. So they were 
so, and, and they were so-called followers of the apostles, but I suppose they were Nazarenes who are described by me here. By birth they are Jews and they dedicated themselves to the Torah and to submit to circumcision. Now we know this, we go, we go into this group of believers in great detail in the early history of the believers in the early church, we, a study we did a few years ago. This is the remnant of the apostolic church. And what does it say? They are Jews who are dedicated to the Torah. Ray Prince wrote about these folks in his book called The Nazarenes and Jewish Christianity. And here's what he found about them. He found these ten things. They used both Old and New Testaments. They have a good knowledge of Hebrew and read the Old Testament, at least one gospel in, the, in, in that language. They believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believe that God is the creator of all things. They believe in one God and his son Yeshua the Messiah. They observe the law of Moses. Ibian came out of them. Earlier they were called Yesian. They had their... They had their origin from Jerusalem congregation, which fled to Pella. They are hated and cursed by the Jews. Can you see why they would have problems with meeting with believers who were not careful about what they ate? Or perhaps had not completely separated themselves from paganism? The Jewish followers of Yeshua in the first century were unchanged when it came to following Torah. We can see this in our apostolic writings as well. Since one of the problems in Rome is food, let's look at a passage about food in Acts chapter 15. Peter says this, or Acts chapter 10. Peter says this, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. You see, Peter was Torah observant. He'd never eaten anything unclean. There's no record of him ever eating anything unclean. That would be biblically unclean. If we look at Acts chapter 15 again, we find this in verse 19. Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he's read in the synagogue every Sabbath day. While this passage is more about abstaining things from idols and paganism, you'll notice the emphasis on food here offered to idols. And we'll look at this more closely when we get to chapter 14. But each of these things have to do with prohibitions given to non-Jews in the Torah, specifically the book of Leviticus. And the point is, contrary to the teachings that you hear in many churches, these Jewish men were Torah observant, And they're asking the non-Jews coming in among them to do what is required of them in the Torah as well. My point being the one I made last week, these Jewish believers had problems because of their Torah observance with these Roman converts. But they had more problems than just with the Romans. Notice what else Prince said in, in number 9 and 10. He said, they had their origin from the Jewish congregation which fled to Pella. And they were hated and cursed by the Jews. The followers of Yeshua had heeded the words of Yeshua and avoided the destruction that came upon Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple by fleeing to Pella. 
And they weren't well liked because of that amongst the Jewish people in, in Jerusalem. Another reason would be that during the Bar Kokhba rebellion of a 135 common era, they didn't fight with the Jewish people who did not know Yeshua as they declared Bar Kokhba to be the Messiah. It'd be hard to fight again, uh, alongside someone like that, wouldn't it? The point being, things happened with the Jewish people as well as the Romans that drove a wedge between the Jewish followers of Yeshua, between both the Romans and also a wedge between the Jewish people who didn't follow Yeshua. And after the destruction of the temple, things with the Jewish people really deteriorated. So much that to drive them out of the synagogues, they inserted a benediction into the 18 benedictions, the Shimona Esrei, and actually made it 19. Their prayers, these prayers are the prayers of the synagogue that are said every day. I want to read from the Jewish uh, virtual library here. It says this. It's exceptional importance in the Christian Jewish relations from the first century common era to present to the president has focused intense scholarly attention on this benediction. The relatively crystallized wording of the benediction in the extant early Sidereem 9th to 12th centuries makes it likely that the text preserved there closely resembles its original formation. We find the following wording in a Palestinian Siddur from the Cairo Geniza. For the apostates, let there be no hope and let the arrogant government be speedily uprooted in our days. Let's, let no Nazarene and the Menim be destroyed in a moment. And let them be blotted out from the book of life and not inscribed together with the righteous. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who humblest the arrogant. This was also a version commonly used in the Babylonian rite. And let them be blotted out was replaced by a Petition to cut off all enemies and may all enemies of your people and the, their opponents be speedily cut off. The Nazarene there in English is Nazarenes. And so if you were a follower of Yeshua, if you were a Nazarene, if you were a Jewish follower of Yeshua and you went to the synagogue, you in effect had to stand there during the prayers and curse yourself. And I wanted to include this today to show that the deterioration in relations for the Jewish followers was not just in regard to the church, but they were alienated from the synagogues as well. And so people ask me, what happened to the myriads of Jewish believers that are spoken of in the book of Acts? Well, I can tell you in a word. Persecution. Persecution. Think about this. Rome's dislike of the Jews did not end in 54 Common Era when they, with their return to Rome. But then again in the late 60s and early 70s, with the Jewish uprising in Jerusalem, it intensifies. So do you suppose the followers of Yeshua, Jewish followers of Yeshua, were persecuted along with the non-believing Jews? Well, of course they were. And then in 135 Common Era, the hatred is again intensified as the Jews uprise again. In, in Israel. Do you suppose the followers of Yeshua suffered along with the rest of the Jewish people? Well, yes, they did. 
Now think about this. Rome also persecuted Christians in the years leading up to the 4th century before it became the state religion. Do you suppose they included the Jewish followers of Yeshua in their persecutions? Well, yes, they did. The point being, the Jewish followers of Yeshua were being persecuted from both sides. So, you know, so now you know why, through history, there were so few Jewish followers of Messiah. They had a hard life. And for many, they had an early death for their faith in Yeshua. The fact that history records these Nazarenes surviving until the 4th or 5th century is a miracle in itself. Okay, so I wanted to show that it wasn't just from the church that these Jewish followers from the apostolic beginnings were alienated and persecuted. Let me ask you this. If these folks were, at, were what was left of the apostolic congregation, who do you suppose would like to see them persecuted to extinction and thereby put an end to that apostolic, that original apostolic congregation that began in 30 Common Era? The adversary of God. And he used the rulers of the present evil age to do it. Well, so much for that. Let's get back to chapter 12. But I wanted to throw that in so that everybody didn't think I was just beating up on the Romans. Even though I was beating up on the Romans. I'm not just beating up on them alone. But last week we also covered the spiritual gifts of chapter 12. Gifts that are used in the community. Paul in chapter 12 will begin to tell us what a community of people, a community of believers in Yeshua should look like. What are the characteristics of Yeshua's kehilat, of the people of Yeshua's kehilat? You see, through chapter 12, he gives us this amazing advice for living together as one new man in Messiah Yeshua. He tells us what it should be like. Let's read uh, verses 6 through 8 again, just for continuity today. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given each of us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the portion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. These are things that are given to us by the grace of God that make us productive members in a community of people and make that community productive in spreading the good news. And I want you to notice the first thing that you notice about these things is they're not supernatural gifts as are listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We covered that last week. The fact is you can find these things at work in people who are not even followers of Yeshua, right? There are a whole lot of people that have these gifts in the world, but they're not used for the purposes of God. Nor are they used in love, as Paul will get to in a moment. We'll have to get that a little more definition. But what Paul is saying here is that within the body, these things should be the norm And because of the influence of God on our hearts, they should be used for the good of the community. We should have these gifts and use them for the good of the community in a measure that's equal to our faith. And they should be used to further the kingdom of God. 
And if we look at just one of these gifts, I think I can, uh, you, you can see what I'm speaking of. It says, he who teaches. You know, there's a whole lot of teachers in the world. School teachers, math teachers, martial arts teachers, teachers of almost anything. It's a gift given to many people. However, if the teaching is inspired by the dwelling presence of God within our hearts, the teaching will be of the kingdom of God. It will glorify God. And notice it says, let him give with liberality. Well, well, giving is found in the world as well. We find those who don't even believe in God are givers. However, we look at giving that's inspired by the Spirit of God within us, it will be giving that glorifies God and furthers the kingdom of God in the world. It will also be done for the glory of God and it will not just be financial, but it will be giving from every area of your life. God wants you to give your money and your time and of the gifts he gave you. And let me say, you cannot give God. If you give of your money in this life, he'll give you riches in the kingdom. If you give of your time for the kingdom of God, he'll give you eternity. You can't outgive him. Do you see how they differ from the gifts of Corinthians? The gifts of Corinthians you don't find in the world. You don't see heathens doing miracles or miraculous healings. Those things are done by and through the power of God. Then he says something that sums up the gifts and the measure that we should find them. He tells us how we'll recognize these gifts in one who is influenced by God. In verse 9 he says, Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And notice he says, love must be sincere. The characteristic that will separate the gifts that are done through the grace of God given each of us and those done by and of the world is love. That's sincere. And the word for love there is agape. And I don't think I have to go into a great deal about the word agape, Because every preacher in the world has defined that word for his congregation. Unless you're a brand new believer, you've heard that word probably uh, defined many times. But as a reminder, I put the definition up here anyway. It means affection or benevolence. Agape is not exactly as we think of love. It's not a, a romantic thing. It's defined by benevolence and charity. Acts that are done for the benefit of others. Acts that are done out of affection, out of love for others. And it says, it must be sincere. And that Greek word there for sincere means without hypocrisy. In other words, loving without any expectation for yourself. We love most often because it gets us something. Think about it. The world loves because it gets, they see some attractive woman, oh, I'd look good with that on my arm, right? We love because it gets us something. But agape is a love that gives, it does, even if it doesn't receive. And we can see this idea of agape in the Shema. 
from Deuteronomy. For those of you who don't understand the Shema, it's the declaration of faith for the Jewish people. And it should be our declaration of faith as well because Yeshua quotes it. He tells us it's the greatest of all commands. Let's read it from Deuteronomy. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And we should all understand how we should love the Lord with all our God with all of our heart and all of our soul. But what, is, what does it mean with all of our strength? Well, I like to look at the Hebrew here because the Hebrew has a little different word used there. And it kind of defines what our strength should be and how it fits into this idea of agape. For those of you who don't know the Hebrew Bible, I just want to clarify one thing. They use, instead of the word Lord, the Lord, they use Hashem instead of Lord, which literally means the name. And so now you'll understand as I read the same passage from a Hebrew Bible. Hear, O Israel, Hashem our God, Hashem is the one and only. You shall love Hashem your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your resources. Notice that strength in the Hebrew Bible becomes resources. You'll love the Lord your God with all your resources. That means you'll love him with your time. You're going to love him with your money and with your gifts. And how do you love the Lord your God with your money? Because I can tell you he doesn't need your money. Well, you use it to further his name in the world and to relieve the pain of his people. In other words, you give it away and he'll give you riches that are riches. He says, how do you use or how do you use your time to love the Lord your God? Well, again, you use your time to commune with him in study and prayer, but you also use your time in service to his people. And that's where the gifts come in. The gifts that God has given you. You use your gifting to teach of God and you do it out of love, but not out of any benefit or anybody patting you on the back. You do it because you love God and you want everyone to love God. You use it for the good. Remember the words of Yeshua. There's only one who is good. And so you use these gifts for the one who is good. And if you use your gifts for any other reason than for the good, then you're using them out of hypocrisy. That means that the gifts above will be done for no other reason than you love the person. That you care about your brother. And that's why Yeshua will say things like this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. To be honored by men, I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't even give yourself, don't even think of yourself as being better. Amen? And where it says acts of righteousness, that works, that word in the Greek means, it's number 1654, it means beneficent. Benefaction, the same thing, alms, giving. 
If your giving is done for any other reason than your love for the person to relieve the suffering, his suffering in this life, then it's done without that sincerity and it's done with hypocrisy. The whole of chapter 6 of Matthew is about using your gifts and your time without hypocrisy. You know, people coming into Sar Shalom, they come into Sar Shalom and they're here for a while. Pretty soon they got me in front of them telling them, where are you going to serve in the congregation? Where are you going to use your gifts in the congregation? And they don't quite understand why I would ask them to do that, almost make them do that. In fact, we require it. Our bylaws require it. It's because he gave us gifts and we need to use them for the community because that's why they were given. We're commanded to do it. I feel bad for pew sitters. I tell you the truth because they're going to have a rude awakening one day. But let's, let's put our verse back up here, verse 9 through 13. It says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. He says, Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourself. I had to cringe when I read that this week. Of course, I cringe whenever I read it. Because that is a hard thing to do. Think about it. How many of us really do that? Think about it for a moment. That is a tall order. I don't think that, I don't even know that it's possible in this life. Except that all things are possible through God. It means that in everything that you do, you set yourself aside for the good of others. It means you have to die to all your needs and wants in life and serve others. He says, love each other with brotherly love. We're to love each other as brothers. And this is really the crux of what Paul is trying to instill in these Romans. In Yeshua, Jew and non-Jew are brothers. We are brothers. That's the reason. Remember how he started the whole letter out? Let's go back to chapter 1. In verse 13, he says this. He starts the letter out this way. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I've had a harvest among other Gentiles. What does he do? He calls these Gentiles because he says... I wanted to come to you, but I've been prevented. All the Jews are gone, so who's he talking to? The Gentiles. And he, what does he call them? He calls them brothers. Now listen to how he begins chapter 9. Verse 3. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Messiah for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. You see, in Messiah, we're brothers. Why don't we treat each other that way? Why would Paul have to write this in chapter 14 and verse 15? If your brother is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Messiah died. Do not allow what you consider to be good to be spoken of as evil. For in the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness. Peace, joy in the Holy Spirit because anyone who serves Messiah in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. 
I love this because it says the kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness. And remember, righteousness, and this is this word for righteousness here is different than the word that was used that we used in Matthew chapter six. Listen to the meaning of this word. Justification. Righteousness. Not alms and charity, but justification. The kingdom of heaven is a matter of justification. And how are you justified? Only one way. Through Messiah Yeshua, the one who came and died to tear down the dividing wall between Jew and non-Jew, the one in whom there is no Jew or Gentile, and the one in whom we are all brothers. He goes, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. You know, as I read this, I think th- I thought this was another key to the purpose of the letter. Now, granted, if we look at the at, at this verse in the context of our own life, if we have those in need within the community, we have to share with God's people, and we have a fund for that. But I don't want to look at it in that context right now. I want to put it back into the context it was written. So if we look at the economy of ancient Rome, even though they ruled most of the known world, there was a lot of poverty in Rome. Rome was very status-oriented, and your status was determined by whether you were slave or free, whether you were a citizen or not a citizen, and also by your wealth. But then your wealth was also determined by your status. So you might imagine that the Jewish people are kind of low on the ladder, on the status ladder, right? especially after having been expelled and they're now returning. And so to say share with God's people could be referring to poverty in general, but notice that he couples it with practice hospitality right behind it. And I put the definition for hospitality up here. And I want you to know this is the only place in Paul's writings it's used. It says to love strangers. Love strangers. This is the only place he uses this word and he uses and and I'm sure that he uses it in a, in a general sense here but who would be some of the strangers that he spoke of Well after his discourse on loving the Jewish people in chapters 9 through 11 and after our understanding of the Jewish people now returning to Rome who would be the strangers coming into the community Who would be needing help returning with much with not much more than the clothes on their back. You see, in a general sense he speaks, but he also, I think, specifically has in mind the Jewish people who are returning to Rome. If, as he said, that Gentiles turning to God would inspire Jewish people to jealousy, remember back through chapters 9 and 11, and if the Jewish people saw that they were turned toward God because of Messiah Yeshua... What would be the surest way that they would realize that? Well, of course, as we said, they're turning to Torah. But it would be by their concern for God's people. By their helping those Jewish people who are returning to Rome. They would see the Romans loving God and his people with all of their resources. 
Okay, so he says, be joyful in hope. In the context of us, we should all be joyful in hope. I mean, think about it. If we're faithful, endure to an end, we're in a win-win situation here. Right? If we live, we, we live within this community who practice the gifts that are spoken of above in love. And if we die, we have this amazing life to look forward to with Yeshua. That's what I call a win-win situation, right? How can you lose? So we should be joyful in our hope of the times ahead. Whether we live long and to serve God for long, or whether we pass tomorrow to go be with Yeshua. It's a win-win. He says, be patient in affliction. Paul speaks of affliction, you know, often joyfully. And why do you suppose that is? Well, Paul thought that one of the ways that you become like Messiah is to share in his sufferings. His suffering for the gospel. Listen to what he tells the Philippians. I want you to know Messiah and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his glory. No, sufferings. Right? Becoming like him in death and somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. He says, faithful in prayer. We need to be faithful in prayer. It's your connection with God. Faithful in prayer for others. We're faithful in prayer here. I wish we were a little more faithful before services. I'd like to see more people praying in the prayer, especially after today. But <laughs> we're faithful in prayer. Nancy leads prayer for Israel several times a week and every Shabbat. But I don't know a soul here that couldn't be more faithful in prayer. Paul says, and I don't know anybody who does this, pray at all times without ceasing. Amen? Okay, so we're going to finish chapter 12 next week and then we'll move on to chapter 13.